As a church, in our statement of faith, which you can actually read our statement of faith online on our website, we hold to the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which means that we believe that the scriptures teach, and this is from our statement of faith, those whom God hath accepted in the beloved Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. And though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again into repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation." And so we confess as a church that if someone has genuinely received Christ by faith, then as Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28, that he gives those who believe eternal life and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. We believe that, as, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Christ, Jesus. That if he has genuinely begun this, this work of salvation within us, that he will complete it. And we can have full assurance of this and find rest in Christ. And I say all this because I want to be clear that I or the church, we... We do not in any way believe that a genuine follower of Christ can lose their salvation. Or that as believers that we should live in fear that we're going to somehow fall away from His grace. Which is what some churches, or those who claim to be churches, and some people teach. Now I just want to be clear about this because there's an issue that the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to be at today and many other books within the New Testament address, which is apostasy. So apostasy takes place when someone decisively and irreversibly turns away from the Christian faith as laid out in the Scriptures. You know, this is someone who confessed to have trusted in Christ for salvation. Maybe they were baptized. They worshipped among fellow church members. Maybe served in different capacities. And maybe when suffering or doubt or temptation arose, whatever the reason was, they eventually completely rejected Christ and turned away from the Christian faith. Maybe you know of some people you were close to who have done this. Maybe a friend or a family member. And I remember a friend who seemed to have trusted in Christ, was baptized, served in, in different ways within the church I was involved with at that time, and eventually he renounced the faith. And is now he's, he's actually advocating for an LGBTQ agenda. You know, there have been pastors, well-known Christian authors, musicians, and, and even some just recently who have done something similar. And the scriptures teach that for those who decisively and irreversibly do this, that they never genuinely knew Christ in the first place. You know, John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, how they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
And so there are warnings throughout the Scriptures urging us not to turn away from Christ and to keep persevering. You know, Andy Nacelli writes, There is tension throughout the New Testament between warning and comfort. On the one hand, God warns professing believers that He will not finally save them if they do not persevere in the faith and good works. And on the other hand, God comforts genuine believers that He will preserve them until the end. And if we were to read through the entirety of the book of Hebrews, then we would feel this tension, which is where we're going to be at today. You know, as we, we, we deal with our new assurance of forgiveness passage that we're going to have for the last quarter of this year. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be specifically in chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 16, so Hebrews chapter 4. And as you turn there, I just want to give us a brief overview of this letter so that we'll kind of understand what's going on within this passage. You know, we, we don't know exactly who the author is, but he is likely writing this to a predominantly Jewish audience because the author assumes that his audience knows the Old Testament pretty well. You know, all throughout the letter, he makes references to major stories and characters that are found throughout the first five books of the Old Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, we also see that this is a community of believers that was faced with persecution and imprisonment because they claimed to be followers of Jesus. And they were being pressured to reject Jesus and to turn back to their old ways of Judaism. And so all throughout this sermon or this letter, he's urging these people to continue persevering. And he's also warning them not to turn back to their old ways, because if they do, then they would be abandoning the only hope that they have, which is in Christ Jesus. And he does this by showing them how Jesus, he's greater, he's more superior than anything or anyone else. He wrote of how Jesus is greater than the angels in the first two chapters of Hebrews. He's greater than Moses in chapter 3. In the first 13 verses of chapter 4, he writes about how Jesus is greater than Joshua. Because Jesus secured a rest that Joshua could not. And he actually urges us to seek that rest which is found in Christ. And then in the second half of chapter 4, starting in verse 14, which will be in verses 14 through 16, but from verse 14 through chapter 9, he makes the spirit-empowered argument for how Jesus and his priesthood was much more superior, it's greater than the Levitical priesthood within the Old Testament. Now he's exhorting these readers who are being pressured and tempted to revert back to their old beliefs and practices to keep on persevering. And he's doing this by showing them how Jesus is, is greater, how he's more superior. And so my main idea for us today, if you want to write this down, is keep holding on to the one who enables you to persevere. So keep holding on to the one who enables you to persevere. But understand the author, he's not just saying, well, why don't you just keep going? Just keep, keep, keep going forward and just leave it at that. But he's also given us important reasons why we should do this and two practical ways that we can keep holding on to the one who enables us to persevere. And this is found in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which is our two subpoints today. The first being hold fast to our confession. So hold fast to our confession. And the second being draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace. And so let's focus on the first one. Hold fast to our confession. You know, the author wrote in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession. You know, in the last part of verse 14, we see the first command. He wrote, let us hold fast to our confession. And I want us to focus on this first before we go back to the first part of verse 14 in a little bit because we need to understand what this confession is and what it means to hold fast to it. And then we'll look at the first part of verse 14 because he gives us the reason why we should hold fast to our confession. Remember, he's not just telling us to keep going, but he's also giving us important reasons why we should and how we can practically do this. And so what is this confession that he is referring to? The confession here is the gospel message that was brought by Christ and passed down to his disciples who would make other disciples. You know, a message about Christ, about who Christ is and, and what he accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this message had also been proclaimed to the original recipients of this letter. And they have claimed to have received Christ by faith and confessed and held these truths to be true. You know, similar to us, Grace Fellowship Church. By God's grace, we have his word, which teaches us and communicates to us the truth that Christ is the Son of God, who came in the flesh, who remained sinless while being perfectly obedient to the Father. And we confess together that he's, he willingly went to the cross and bore our sins. He took on the wrath of God that we deserved, and he shed his blood to atone for our sins. We confess that he died but that God also rose him from the grave three days later, and that he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father where he's interceding for us. And we also confess that we will one day receive our glorified bodies and we will be present with him for all of eternity. And if you're here today and you have heard that message and received Christ by faith, then these are truths that we believe together, that we confess together, and that we hope in as a church. You know, the author actually writes about this confession later on in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. He wrote, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, one writer wrote when referring to, to Hebrews 10, verse 23, that Christians alone have true hope because the one who makes such promises to us is faithful. The faithfulness of his word and his activity through history give us the basis for our hope and confidence that God will do all that he promises. And going back to, to chapter 4, verse 14, the author commands them and us to hold fast to our confession. You know, this is just another way of saying that, that we need to cling to it, that we need to hold tightly to it. And do not leave behind or, go, or try to, to go to something else that we think would be more superior than that. Now, I'm sure all of us have uh, seen at least one of the numerous Pringles commercials that comes on TV all the time. You know, one of my favorites is, is, is one, favorite one of the, the commercials that, that have come out is, is one that begins showing a, a young man who is at a party. And, of course, he sees the last Pringle in the Pringle can, and so he can't resist it, right? So... He, he goes to stick his hand into the Pringle can to grab the last chip, and of course what happens, his hand gets stuck, but he's not willing to let go, right? And so the commercial goes on, and it shows him playing college basketball. It shows him meeting the love of his life, and they get married, and they have kids, and, and, and then eventually you see him get old, and, and then all of a sudden you see him at his own funeral. He's in the casket, and the Pringles can is still in his hand right? Uh, he was clinging on to that last chip with the hope that he would be able to eat it, right? And he literally held on to the end. 
Now, that's a very silly commercial, but I, I hope it helps us remember that in a similar and an actual meaningful way, that the author of Hebrews is commanding them and us to hold fast to our confession. Because there's nothing that we can turn to that would be greater. You know, and there are numerous times leading up to this passage that the author of Hebrews, he warns his original audience not to turn away from what they confess and know to be true. He wrote in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay close, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so those who persevere until the end are those who hold fast to the confession of faith as laid out within the Scriptures. And so we must hold fast to our confession. But going back to the first part of verse 14, he gives us a good reason why we should hold fast to our confession. He wrote, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. You remember that the original audience that he was writing to was being tempted to revert back to Judaism and to the many practices and beliefs that were upheld under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, the Levitical priesthood was, they, they played a major role. If you're not familiar with the Levitical priesthood, then just to give us a, a kind of a, a brief understanding, under the Old Covenant, since man is sinful and cannot approach God because he is holy, God, he, he took the initiative of setting up a means by which the people could draw near to him and temporarily provide a covering for their sin problem in a way that he could dwell among his people and they could worship him. And so he set apart the tribe of Levi from among the 12 tribes of Israel, and from that tribe he chose Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, to be the first high priest, and his sons to be the other priests who would serve under his leadership as they represented the people before God. They were the beginning of the Levitical priesthood, and all the Levitical priests who came after them had to come from the tribe of Levi from the line of Aaron. And God gave them specific instructions for how they were to lead the people in worship as they served as these mediators between God and, and his people. For example, one of the most holy and solemn days on the Jewish calendar that was celebrated was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. You know, the Jewish people were commanded to observe this day once a year, which is what Trevor read earlier during our scripture reading in Leviticus 16. Only on that one day out of the year was the high priest allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, you know, the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was located behind the veil and, and where God's presence would descend down to be among his people. On that day before the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, he was commanded by God to bathe, put on special garments, and sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and for his family. They would then bring two goats and one would be sacrificed and the blood sprinkled on and the blood was sprinkled on the ark of the covenant to atone for the sins of the people and the high priest would then place his hands on the head of the other goat and confessed over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites and that goat which was known as a scapegoat carried on itself the sins of the people which were forgiven for another year but the high priest would have to enter into the tabernacle and eventually the, t the temple which were made by human hands, and do this every single year. But listen again to what the author of Hebrews writes in verse 14. 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Under the new covenant, we have a great high priest who is far greater, who is more superior than all the other high priests who came before him. Why? Because we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. We have a great high priest under the new covenant who is the Son of God, who did not have to atone for his own sins because he was sinless. He did not have to offer up animal sacrifices year after year because he offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all to atone for sins. And he did not enter into a temple or a tabernacle that was made with human hands. But he ascended back into heaven, or as the author of Hebrews wrote later on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And Christ, our great high priest, he remains there permanently, as Hebrews chapter 7 teaches, to represent us and to intercede for us before the Father until we come to be present with him. And so the author of Hebrews, he's saying, since we have such a great high priest, why would you even consider going back to the old ways? They cannot accomplish what he did accomplish. And so hold fast to our confession. And so one of the practical ways that, that we continue holding on to the one who enables us to persevere is by holding fast to our confession. But secondly, we also continue persevering by drawing near to the throne of grace. Drawing near to the throne of grace. You know, the author of Hebrews writes in verses 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so it's pretty obvious to see that our second point today comes from the second command that the author gives us in the first part of verse 16, which is, you know, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And so what is this throne of grace that he mentions here? You know, the throne of grace here is the place of God's presence. And our minds may not automatically go there, but for the Jews who made up the original recipients of this letter, this would have likely brought to their minds how under the Old Covenant, only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would reside once a year on the Day of Atonement. But he is intentionally highlighting how Christ has brought something much greater. Now, William Lane writes, Through his high priestly ministry, Christ has achieved for them what Israel never enjoyed. Namely, immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. And so under the new covenant, we do not have to wait for the day of atonement to enter into his presence. And that was only if you were the high priest. But if you are in Christ, then you have direct access to him anytime through prayer at any time. And the word used for draw here actually means to come again and again and again, you know, to continually come to him. He commands us to continually come into the presence of the one who wants us to come to him. But why should we draw near? You know, take a look back at verse 15. He wrote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. And so we have a high priest in Christ who will sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's not a high priest who is absolutely clueless about our struggles that we face in our lives. He stepped down from his his rightful position at the right hand of the Father to step down into his creation and become fully man. And when he became fully man, he experienced temptation just like we do throughout his life. But unlike us, he did not give in to temptation. He did not sin. But he's now able to sympathize with his covenant people. He knows and understands what we go through. And maybe you read this verse and you say to yourself, you know, God doesn't really know what I go through. Yeah, he, he never sinned, but that's because he's the son of God, right? He doesn't really know how hard it is for me and my weaknesses. Well, C.S. Lewis once heard someone bring up an argument pretty similar to this when reading this verse, and he described how they said, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. It was kind of funny that Lewis responded to that person by saying, you know, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And so one of the reasons we continually come into his presence is because he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. When we're tempted and we're struggling, When we're weak, when we draw near to his throne of grace, he shows empathy towards us when we come to him. But also take a look at verse 16 and we'll see what happens when we draw near. Let's read verse 16 again. He wrote, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, when we draw near to him, he extends mercy and grace to us in time of need. He doesn't turn us away. He doesn't belittle us or criticize us when we're struggling or we're weak like, a, like, a, like an earthly, ruthless king who sits on a throne not giving a care about his people. You know, Sam Storm wrote when referring to this verse that some people are, are more intimidated than encouraged by the idea of a throne. You know, the regal atmosphere, the power and dignity associated with one who sits on a throne it might put hesitation in more than a few hearts. That is, until we see that this is a throne of grace. Our author could have, could have, but didn't, say the throne of God or the throne of heaven. Make no mistake, it is certainly a throne to which we come, but it is grace that awaits us there. It is grace that sits enthroned. It is not a throne of law or of criticism or of judgment, but of grace. This throne exists to dispense grace to those who seek it out. Its purposes are gracious. The utterances spoken there are gracious. The answers to to prayer received there are all of grace. When we draw near to His throne of grace, then He extends mercy to us and He gives us the grace that enables us to continue persevering in the faith. And so we keep holding on to the one who enables us to persevere by holding fast 
to our confession, and through continually drawing near to the throne of grace. But I just want to take a moment to draw out a few more points of application to help us be able to better understand how to apply these truths. So I just have three more points of application. You know, firstly, one being, do, do you have a false sense of hope? Do you have a false sense of hope? You know, my friend and, and others in the past who uh, claim to have confessed Christ and, and, and seem to have trusted in Christ, but then eventually turned away completely, you know, I, along, along with other believers who were around him, did not doubt his conversion. You know, I, I'm sure that, you know, for many others that, who were in a similar situation, that they could also say that their experience was the same. You know, I, I didn't know what was going on in his heart. However, I know now that their faith was never genuinely placed in Christ and what he accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection. I know that there was never a genuine conversion that took place and that their hope was placed elsewhere. Yeah, I think that sometimes people can really love being around the people of God and experiencing the, the works that God is doing through his church, but do so without actually ever trusting in Christ for salvation. And maybe when times of suffering or weakness or whatever may come and things get hard and difficult, they can turn away. And so first, I, I want to encourage us, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to examine yourselves, you know, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You know, have you genuinely turned from your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation? Or do you have a false hope in something or someone else other than Christ? Or maybe you're sitting here and you, and you know that you haven't received Christ. And if that's you, then I would encourage you, like the author of Hebrew does here, with it, all throughout this letter, to see that there is nowhere else that you can turn to find salvation, to find peace, to find hope, to find true joy. It's only found in Christ. I say all this before the next point of application because when we read the assurance of forgiveness, then I don't want to fuel a false sense of hope. Because when we read the assurance of forgiveness together as a church body during the service, then we're reading a promise from the scriptures that is already true for those who have genuinely put their faith in and cling to Christ as their only hope to be pardoned from sin. That's why it is an assurance, right? We're reminding one another when we read through this every service on Sunday that even though we struggled with sin and weakness this week, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Which leads to my next point of application. Uh, is Jesus will preserve genuine Christians until the end. So Jesus, he will preserve genuine Christians until the end. Nacelli writes again, Someone who once professed to be a Christian may become an apostate. But a genuine Christian cannot become an apostate. I hear that again. Someone who professed. Now, this, this doesn't mean that they're a genuine Christian. This is someone who just claimed to know Christ at one point. Someone who professed to be a Christian may become apostate. But a genuine Christian cannot become an apostate. For we who have genuinely trusted in Christ, we can be assured of the forgiveness that we've received in Christ. 
Because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus is our permanent high priest who represents us before the Father and whose prayers never cease for us. Because as Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, he always lives to make intercession for us. And his priesthood is permanent. And our salvation is as permanent as his priesthood is permanent. He saves us completely. So if you examine yourself and you see that you've genuinely trusted in Christ, then be assured that he has promised you that he will bring that work which he began in you to a completion. And that will not fail. And so do you have a false sense of hope? You know, Jesus will preserve genuine Christians until the end. And lastly, we have a responsibility. So we have a responsibility. You know, the author has given us two commands as we seek to be faithful in holding on to the one who enables us to persevere. These commands are given, us, given to us not just to hear them, but to obey. You know, to hold fast to our confession and to draw near to the throne of grace. And so how are we currently being intentional about being obedient to these commands? You know, are we clinging to the truth? What are we filling our minds with most often on a regular basis? You know, what occupies your thoughts throughout the day? What influences the decisions that we make and how we live our lives? Is it God's Word or is it something else? Are we disciplined in reading, studying, and meditating on the Scriptures regularly? You know, Joshua and I were, were talking at the end of youth on Friday night, and he reminded me of the, the quote by Charles Spurgeon when he's writing about John Bunyan. Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, Prick him anywhere, and you will find that his blood is, is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. It cannot speak, he cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the Word of God. I mean, I, that's someone who held fast to our confession, who cherished God's Word, who cherished the truth. And those who persevere until the end will be those who hold fast to the truth. But also, we have a responsibility to continually draw near to the throne of grace too, right? Now, have you been drawing near to Him in prayer? And if your answer to this is no, then, then I don't ask this question just to heap or, or, or guilt upon your head or to, to make you feel like you, you're, you're drowning in guilt and shame. But I ask this question because I want us to think about why we haven't been drawing near to the throne of grace. Maybe you've been struggling with sin and weakness and you haven't drawn near to Him in prayer because you've been viewing Him as only sitting on a throne of judgment. How do you view Jesus in those moments of weakness? Do we think that He will love us less or look down upon us or judge us harshly or He's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses? Then I want to encourage us, as we have heard in our text, that we have a high priest who is sympathetic towards us and desires that we come to him over and over again, continually, because he will extend mercy and grace to us, which will enable us to be able to persevere for his glory. And so let's continue holding on to the one who enables us to persevere by holding fast to our confession and drawing near to the throne of grace. And we're going to continue, going to transition now into a time as a church where we will proclaim these wonderful truths of the gospel together as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that the Scriptures clearly teach that when we partake of the Lord's Supper together,
that no way does this play a role in saving us because good works cannot save us. Salvation is found in Christ alone, and we receive Christ by faith alone. However, Christ has commanded us to partake in this together as a church body and to remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. It's a way that we worship him through proclaiming these truths to each other as we partake in this together. You know, the scriptures are also clear that if, if you've not trusted in Christ, then you should not partake in this. And so we ask that you please let the, the bread and the cup pass by if you have not trusted in, in Jesus. Also, we ask that if you, you haven't been baptized, which is the first step of obedience that Christ commands of us and shows that you've actually had a serious conversation with someone about how you have trusted in Christ, that you would also please let the cup pass as well. And so first, we're going to have a, a moment of silence. I'll pray, and then, uh, and then Trevor is going to help me pass the bread. We'll read from the scriptures together and pray once more and then partake of it together. Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs> 